Hi, this is Katie Edwards from Clean Air Action Fund. Welcome to our podcast, On Air Policy. The Clean Air Action Fund is a 501c4 environmental organization focused on fighting climate change and its impacts in Pennsylvania. The Action Fund engages in lobbying and electoral work to advocate for candidates and policies to address the climate crisis and hold elected officials accountable. Today, we have a special rapid response podcast with our guest, Clean Air Action Fund attorney, Robert Ruth, here to talk about the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA. Before we get into the nitty gritty, I think we can all take a collective deep breath and bask in the moment of the Inflation Reduction Act passing. Hi, Robert. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Katie. Thanks for inviting me on. For those listening, as Katie mentioned, I'm Robert Ruth. I'm an attorney with the Clean Air Action Fund. I focus on legal and policy issues related to clean energy, climate change, air pollution, and decarbonizing Pennsylvania. And yeah, a sigh of relief, a bit of basking is definitely deserved right now because it's been two years nearly of painstaking and up and down negotiations over this bill. And it's never happened before in the history of the U.S. government. The United States Senate has not passed a significant climate bill in our lifetimes. And this contains a historic amount of investments in building up America's clean energy economy. Okay, let's get into this historic bill. What is the Inflation Reduction Act? How long has it been up for consideration in Congress? And what did it start out as? All great questions, Katie. The Inflation Reduction Act, in terms of parliamentary procedure in the Senate, it is a budget reconciliation bill, which means that it can be adopted without being subject to the undemocratic 60-vote minimum filibuster rules in the Senate. So this was adopted on Sunday, August 7th, by the Senate with 50 votes plus the tiebreaker vote from Vice President Harris. And what it started as began in the first couple months of the Biden administration After the passage of the American Rescue Plan Act, a COVID-19 recovery and stimulus bill that was also enacted through a budget reconciliation process, President Biden's next moves that he announced were to pass, at the time, what were referred to as the American Jobs Plan and American Family Plan. And they went through different iterations. For a while, they were known as uh, sort of comprising President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. And when negotiations really began in earnest and bill text was being drafted, there was a strategic decision to have one path be an infrastructure law that a number of the chief negotiators on it felt could be and should be adopted in a bipartisan manner. So it contained some climate investments money for electric vehicle or EV charging infrastructure, money to plug orphan and abandoned wells, which is a major crisis in Pennsylvania. But it was also largely about federal infrastructure projects and expanded highway funds. And so it included some climate components, but was not 
at its core a climate bill. And then separately, for a while, these two pieces of legislation were tied together and passage of one was sort of conditional on passage of the other. Separately was the uh, what was called the Build Back Better Act, a first version of a reconciliation bill that included at one point $3.5 trillion worth of investments, not just in climate, but in universal pre-K and child care, paid family leave, an extension of the child tax credit, health care benefits. It was just a monumental castle of different democratic policy priorities. And that was negotiated down to just north of $2 trillion. And as negotiations dragged on and everyone struggled to figure out how to get Senator Manchin to yes on the reconciliation bill, pressure grew strong enough from Senator Manchin and some House members to decouple the bills and move the bipartisan infrastructure law. So that ended up passing in the House last fall and was sent to President Biden's desk in November. So the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law or Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act became law while the Build Back Better Act was still left to be decided. And uh, rather infamously, in December of 2021, Senator Manchin went on Fox News and declared that he simply couldn't support this bill at this time and was walking away from negotiations and gave everyone a lot of heartache, disappointment, people thinking that he'd backstabbed the, the Biden administration. In early 2022, he expressed an openness to negotiating further on a reconciliation bill that was more limited in scope and according to his priorities would focus on energy investments, energy independence, uh, bringing down the cost of prescription drugs and federal deficit reduction. Those were what he identified. And rather than having negotiations play out in public in the media like it had uh, with the Build Back Better Act in 2021, this was very quietly negotiated over many months with long stretches of time where it was not clear that any work was being done as other priorities moved forward in the Senate. This was quietly negotiated primarily by Senator Manchin's staff and Majority Leader Schumer's staff. There was a breaking point just a few weeks ago on July 14th where Lots of media outlets reported that Senator Manchin was walking away from the climate and tax portions of this new reconciliation bill, that inflation was the pretext, it was simply too out of control, and all he was willing to consider at this time was the health care subsidies uh, and prescription drug reforms. He insisted on seeing an inflation report the next one to come out would be August 10th, just in order to see how inflation was doing before deciding to move forward because of the timing for when expected increases in Affordable Care Act premiums were going to be announced. There was clear momentum and a need to get this reconciliation bill done before Congress headed home for the August recess. So not clear who leaked discussions of the negotiations, but the headlines and lots of follow-up reporting confirmed that Senator Manchin had walked away and Senate Democrats were moving forward with an even narrower version of the bill. And then in a complete bombshell, 
and a shock to just about everyone involved, including 48 Senate Democratic colleagues of Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer on July 27th, uh, late in, on a Wednesday evening, they announced a breakthrough with Senator Manchin's office releasing a statement saying he was going to propose and vote for what was first referred to as the Inflation Reduction Act. And it includes $369 billion in clean energy investments, extended tax credits, money for programs identified by environmental justice communities and, and advocates as priorities. There's a methane emission reduction program included, laundry list of amazing historic policy ideas included in this bill. And we will get into that more, but that is the path that this bill has taken uh, since Biden took office to arrive where we are now. Well, it's certainly been an exciting couple of weeks following this bill. You did mention the $369 billion in funding. That's for the climate portion of the IRA, correct? That's correct, yes. And what makes that spend so historic? Well, the top line dollar amount exceeds by far the amount that was included in President Obama's American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the 2009 stimulus bill, orders of magnitude higher amount to clean energy tax credits and to rebate programs for consumers. And it is, it is designed to make clean energy more affordable and more scalable over the course of this coming decade. And it will do so in part by tying tax credits to prevailing wage requirements, which will ensure that good union jobs are, are used to build up the clean energy economy. And it's designed to clean up our electric grid, decarbonize the electric sector, which is a key linchpin to decarbonizing the other sectors of our economy, but it also targets those other sectors too, the transportation sector, the industrial sector. It will help clean up our buildings and agriculture. So it covers and provides investments for and opportunities to transform all different sectors of our economy that are right now contributing to the climate crisis. And so preliminary modeling analysis released by a few different groups each of which are using slightly different methodologies uh, and different inputs, all collectively have come to you know, an initial conclusion that, that this bill will result in roughly 40% lower greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 compared to 2005 levels. And so when you combine this bill with further actions from federal executive agency rulemakings, state and local action, like Pennsylvania's participation in the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, and investments from the private sector in these new technologies that it will see a massive influx of, of federal funds, this gives us a fighting chance at achieving President Biden's 2030 goals, uh, which are embraced by the scientific community to cut our emissions roughly in half or by 52% by 2030. So this bill opens the door and gives us, again, a fighting chance at, at achieving those goals, whereas 
a few weeks ago when it looked like the climate portion of this legislation was dead and we were thinking only of executive agency action, state and local action, it was difficult to see the path to getting to our 2030 goals without. So it is a, a lifeline to moving forward in a way that we've all been working on uh, since Biden took office. Robert, I'm glad you brought up the dent that the IRA is going to make and the reduction of greenhouse gases and how it's been predicted through a number of models. Do you have any numbers on social impacts, like how many jobs this bill will create, how many premature deaths will be avoided? Beyond the the climate benefits of this rule, Katie, yes, there will be Many other benefits, including economic boon from new job growth and expanded manufacturing industries, lower consumer energy bills, and yes, public health benefits from avoided illnesses to reduced air pollution that is associated with the greenhouse gas pollution emitted by a lot of these sources. So I've seen different figures citing to the prospect of millions of good family-sustaining jobs being created over this decade with passage of this bill. One figure I saw in an analysis that was commissioned by the Blue-Green Alliance found the bill would grow the workforce by 9 million jobs over the coming decade. And then thousands of premature deaths avoided this decade, both from mitigated climate change impacts and reduction of conventional air pollutants that are extremely hazardous to human health. We are already experiencing the devastating impacts of climate change. You know, we're dealing with hotter, wetter summers. We're dealing with drought. We're dealing with wildfires. Do you think that there's anything that this bill and the climate solutions that it proposes will do to start to ameliorate some of the impacts of climate change? Absolutely. Every single ton of CO2 that we avoid emitting into the atmosphere represents an additional amount of warming that we are avoiding, that we are not locking in. We have targets and goals set in place, not just for 2030, but you know the 2030 goals are designed to maintain a pathway for where we need to get by mid-century with net zero greenhouse gas emissions, all designed to achieve a particular amount of warming that we will sustain. You know, comparing right now to pre-industrial activities, we've baked in over 1.1 or 1.2 degrees Celsius of warming. So even if we were to magically wave a wand and shut off all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide starting tomorrow, those effects are baked in. What we are currently experiencing will continue because carbon and its evil twin methane, which is much shorter lived, but carbon persists in the atmosphere for centuries. So what this bill will do is reduce the amount of carbon that is emitted going forward. And when you compare the projection for what economy-wide and in the United States will be emitting in 2030 and compare it to 2005, used as sort of a peak baseline number, it's projected to see emissions cut by 40%. One estimate I saw from Princeton's repeat project showed that this bill is projected to reduce one gigaton or one billion tons of carbon equivalent emissions in 2030 compared to maintaining the status quo, which includes current policy like the 
bipartisan infrastructure law. So to put that in some context, U.S. total greenhouse gas emissions were about 5.6 billion tons in 2021. Under current policy, that uh, would be projected to go down to about 5 billion tons of CO2 equivalent we'd be emitting in 2030. And with passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, that figure is projected to drop down to about 4 billion tons of CO2 equivalent. So still be emitting significant amounts of greenhouse gases. We will need to get to net zero by mid-century, but the difference between where we were two weeks ago and where we are with this bill enacted is projected to be on the order of about 1 billion tons fewer CO2 equivalent emissions by the end of this decade. This is not going to solve the problem of climate change. No individual policy, even as sweeping as this one, will do that. It will take sustained effort for the indefinite future with a series of policy changes at the state and local level. And again, we need our federal agencies like the EPA and the Department of Transportation to move forward with their aggressive agency rules to to protect human health and the environment. But this bill, again, gives us a fighting chance and does more than any other single climate action in U.S. history. climate actions, in your opinion, what are some of the most impactful provisions in the IRA? What programs do you think are going to make the biggest difference? Well, I think that the 10-year extension of the investment tax credit and production tax credit for clean energy, for renewable projects, sometimes called the ITC and the PTC, that is, I think, the bread and butter of clean energy policy. It's the workhorse. It's going to ensure that projects have a predictable, viable financial future that will drive investments into renewable energy projects. And like I mentioned earlier, the cleaning up our electricity sector is the cheapest and easiest way to decarbonize our other sectors like transportation and buildings where we can electrify existing processes that rely on fossil fuels. And if you're electrifying those using clean electricity, rather than just incentivizing having more demand for coal-fired power or gas-fired power, you're creating cleaner and more effective ways to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint. So I think those clean energy tax credits will be the key driver of decarbonization and not to mention lower consumer energy costs in this bill. There are also, along those same lines, investments up to $3 billion for electric transmission infrastructure, those long-distance power lines that, that you see. We need to build out a lot more of those in order to transport renewable energy from where it's generated to where facilities need it. On the transportation side, there are significant EV tax credits included in the bill. There's $3 billion that goes to the U.S. Postal Service to purchase electric vehicles and associated infrastructure. The USPS is one of the largest civilian fleets in the world, so electrification will have a major impact there. There's investments in domestic clean vehicle manufacturing. 
I've heard some people describe this bill as an industrial policy bill that is disguised as or otherwise talked about as a climate bill, but there's a lot in here that will ensure a build-out of domestic manufacturing to manufacture solar panels, wind turbines, batteries that can be used for energy storage and go into EVs. All included in this legislation, it should help transform America's manufacturing sector. And then for consumers, there's great rebates for home electrification and energy efficiency. There's, I believe, up to $9 billion in rebates to Americans for high-efficiency electric appliances and whole home energy retrofits. The appliances I'm talking about are, for example, a heat pump, which provides both cooling and heating and can replace gas furnaces or oil furnaces in people's homes. There's going to be incentives for electric water heaters, induction ranges or electric stoves, cooktops, electric clothes dryers. There's incentives in here to help consumers upgrade their circuit breakers, their fuse boxes, so that they can handle all of the new electricity demand in their homes. There's a tax credit for residential energy efficiency. And then on the industrial sector side, separate from the $369 billion, there is an entire section of the bill referred to as the Methane Emissions Reduction Program. The centerpiece of that is what's known as a waste emissions charge, or what normal people will call the methane fee, that requires facilities across the entire oil and gas supply chain to pay a fee if their emissions exceed some pretty stringent minimum thresholds. And that fee, which the bill would have start on January 1, 2024, is set at $900 of ton of methane, and that ramps up pretty quickly to $1,500 a ton by 2026. For context, Pennsylvania's oil and gas operations alone, independent studies have shown emit over 1.1 million tons of methane per year, and that's almost entirely through unintended leaking of the product. Occasionally, facilities will vent or flare their methane gas, but The majority is lost through leaks, which occurs at every single segment of the oil and gas supply chain, and it's not a consequence of what happens when you burn methane gas at a power plant or at a steel mill. That process results in in carbon dioxide emissions, which is chief driver of the climate crisis, but methane is, is a greenhouse gas that is over 80 times as efficient at trapping heat in the atmosphere as CO2 over the first 20 years after it's put into the air. So the amount that the methane fee will raise depends in no small part on how compliant these facilities are with EPA rules once the fee kicks in in 2024. And this methane fee is designed to be complementary with some ongoing EPA federal methane rules. EPA had a proposal go out for comment with the comment period closing earlier this year. We're expecting to see new language there, but it will establish methane control requirements. So those EPA methane rules, once they're finalized, there will be a backstop built in there with this methane fee. So the way it's written, if 
a company or a facility complies with EPA's methane rules, so long as they're as stringent as the ones EPA's put out for comment, they don't have to pay the methane fee. So it's a financial penalty for noncompliance, but it's also clever in that the way the bill is written, if those EPA methane rules are ever weakened by a future administration or struck down in court, the methane fee will kick in. So again, companies are exempt from paying the methane fee in this bill if they're compliant with EPA's methane rules that aren't done yet, but it's written so that those EPA methane rules must be as stringent as the rules EPA has already put out for comment. And last thing for the methane program, there's $1.5 billion given to EPA for a grant program that will be used to cover admin costs, provide you know assistance to oil and gas operators uh, in monitoring and mitigating methane pollution, and to support communities that are impacted by oil and gas operations, which Pennsylvania has a lot of. And of that $1.5 billion, $700 million is specifically set aside for those activities I just talked about at marginal conventional wells. These are these smaller wells with leak-prone equipment, and Pennsylvania has tens of thousands of those. So the CPA grant program on the methane side will be very important for Pennsylvania. Robert, I'm really glad you talked about the methane fee because here in Pennsylvania, we are the second largest producer of natural gas, and that has the potential to really reduce our methane emissions. Are there other provisions that will have impacts on Pennsylvania? Are there provisions that will have impacts on Philadelphia? Can we kind of drill down and look at this bill on a state and local level? That's a really good question. There's a lot that we are going to unpack with this bill in the weeks, months, years to come. I think there's a lot that we won't fully appreciate or get for a couple years. I haven't seen any specific analysis that hones in on the state or local level, but for example, the $60 billion in investments for environmental justice programs and environmental justice communities, essentially the entire city of Philadelphia is an environmental justice community. So, you know, whether it's the EJ and climate block grants included in the bill, neighborhood access and equity grant programs, air pollution monitoring programs, all fall within this bucket of the uh, $60 billion for EJ investments. Those will all be opportunities that the Clean Air Action Fund will need to and absolutely should work with communities in Philadelphia to help access those grants, to make sure that those dollars are invested wisely and in areas of real need. Thinking of Pennsylvania, the most recent figures I've seen say that Pennsylvania produces about 4% of its electricity from renewable energy sources. That's really low. So there's a lot of opportunity to grow. And at the same time, Pennsylvania produces the second largest amount of nuclear-generated power in the country, which is roughly 30 to 35% of our electricity portfolio. So this bill extends financial assistance to nuclear power plants. There's certainly issues with nuclear power, but it emits zero greenhouse gases when it's generating electricity. So ensuring that plants don't retire prematurely will 
be great for our decarbonization goals and will have meaningful impact in Pennsylvania, just given how much nuclear power we produce. Robert, we know that the IRA was a compromise between Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin. Can you talk about some of the provisions that went into the bill that we aren't exactly happy with? Yes, and it's important to acknowledge those. There has been reporting that shows that some of these provisions we're about to describe were necessary trade-offs in order to secure Senator Manchin's vote on this bill. And not just his vote. He's been out there since it was first mentioned by his office in a press statement. He's been out there championing it and going and doing a whole press tour to sell this piece of legislation. And this is just the way of the United States Senate, uh, not exactly one of our most functional representative bodies. But what we're talking about in large part are some of the oil and gas leasing sections in the Inflation Reduction Act. The bill will mandate I believe up to four offshore oil lease sales where the Interior Department makes federal waters available to oil and gas companies to lease in order to drill offshore. These particular lease sales have had a lengthy history. Some have been subject to court challenge. They were not currently moving forward. So the bill mandates that the Interior Department make those areas in the Gulf of Mexico, and I believe one of them off the shore of Alaska, put those out for lease sales. And that's problematic, continues to tie potential dependence on fossil fuels, and could lead to extraction in federal waters. And it's just poor from a due process perspective. You know that a lot of environmental groups have been challenging these lease sales in the past, and this is the legislature stepping in and just overruling all of those proceedings. So there's that. And then there's a provision in there that will tie for the next 10 years any federal government grants of rights of way, essentially authorizing the development on federal lands, the deployment of wind and solar projects, I guess on public lands and waters. It ties those, makes them conditional on the Interior Department moving forward with other federal oil and gas lease sales. So just one example, an offshore wind lease would only be permitted to occur if the Interior Department held at least one offshore oil and gas lease sale within a year's time. And so, and unfortunately, it is not reciprocal. So the case isn't in order to move forward with a federal oil and gas lease sale, there must also be a commensurate lease sale or approval for wind and solar projects. The oil and gas lease sales can continue on without any necessary tie to renewable energy projects on federal lands or waters. So it's fairly nonsensical because the two are completely unrelated, but it seems like a way to try and codify what Senator Manchin and others have long talked about as an all-of-the-above energy approach. So that will be in place for the next 10 years. Some caveats are that just because an amount of land or, or water offshore is made available for sale does not mean that oil and gas companies will choose to obtain those leases. And they're currently sitting on thousands of unused leases across the country. So there's also no requirement that they will actually develop 
any of those leases if they choose to get them. And, you know, part of the thinking in this bill and why the modeling I've seen so far suggests that the good far outweighs the bad is that this is not just increasing fossil fuels and renewables on the supply side and having them compete in the marketplace together. This is also intended to crush the demand for fossil fuels. So it is a disincentive to develop new oil and gas leases if more and more people have cheaper, easier access to electric appliances in their home, if more people are driving electric vehicles. That is some of the silver lining, but those future oil and gas lease sales, if necessary to lead to renewable energy development on federal lands or waters, those will have to go through the typical process and be subject to challenge. So environmental groups will undoubtedly be following those and uh, exercising their rights to try and protect communities, which, you know, they've already been disproportionately burdened by fossil fuel pollution for decades now. So the extent to which this bill leads to any additional burdens on those communities at the same time as they're making $60 billion investments in EJ communities, that's something that we need to push back on and be aggressively focused on. Those are trade-offs in this bill. There was also apparently a side agreement that has been struck between Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin that will result in a separate bill that Schumer has committed to getting done this fiscal year, so meaning by September 30th, that will require 60 votes. It won't be a reconciliation bill, but is intended to streamline the permitting process for fossil fuel projects like pipelines, as well as electric transmission lines. So as I said earlier, there's a great need to build out lots of electric transmission lines in order to make renewable energy deployable in the country. But early reports on this separate piece of legislation and, and the one pager that I've seen on it suggest that it will limit the NEPA review process or the National Environmental Policy Act process, which will limit affected communities' ability to be able to weigh in on proposals as they move forward. So again, that is unhelpful public policy, potentially damaging to communities and people who, again, have already suffered enough as a result of fossil fuel infrastructure. So we will see what that legislation looks like uh, if and when it's drafted and introduced. You know, the Senate's gone home for the summer, but we will analyze that closely. But that was a side piece of this negotiation because a lot of those permit reform ideas can't be accomplished through the budget reconciliation process. So as much as Manchin wanted them, and I'm sure would have preferred that they be part of this package from the get-go, it will need to move on a separate track. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to see how all of these programs and provisions and side bills shake out. Before we wrap up, I just want to go back and acknowledge the historic spending for climate solutions in this bill, the support of renewable energy, green jobs, environmental justice, and more. Is there anything about the Inflation Reduction Act that we haven't talked about yet that you particularly want our listeners to know? There's a lot in this legislation, a lot to sink our teeth into and a lot to really come to grips with moving forward. And I think the overall 
takeaway, I guess, what I want listeners to come away from this with is that this is not a perfect bill. Nothing nothing that the United States Senate produces is. And there are trade-offs, as we just discussed. But the Inflation Reduction Act presents the best opportunity, our best opportunity, for critical federal investment to address the climate crisis. And given the margins in the U.S. House and Senate, it's frankly remarkable that we've reached this point and that we'll be able to, with this legislation, build a more just, affordable, and secure clean energy economy. And it's what the American people demanded and have deserved since voting President Biden into office, having Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate, and ensuring that Speaker Pelosi remained in charge of the House. This is a culmination of the bold climate agenda that elected officials ran on and won on back in 2020. And the future is is uncertain. So the fact that we had 50 Senate votes and a majority in the House to pass this means we have no time to waste and no more time to delay. So this is our best opportunity because the last time a climate bill failed in the U.S. Congress that was over a decade ago, and we've spent the last decade reliant only on the other tools available to us with executive agency action and state and local action. So that is what I mean when I say this is our best opportunity because we don't have another decade to waste. So it's a moment to, as you said at the top, bask and appreciate the hard work from so many over so many years to arrive at this point. And stay tuned for more because we'll have a lot to talk about with this as it gets implemented. Well, we will certainly stay tuned. Robert, thank you for being on the podcast today and for this insightful deep dive into the Inflation Reduction Act and federal climate policy. Katie, thanks so much for having me on. It's nice to talk about something good positive for a change. This is great. And I feel like we're just scratching the surface. So thanks again. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about climate policy, we encourage you to check out the Clean Air Action Fund website, cleanairactionfund.org. You can also follow the fund on social media at Clean Air Action on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you like what you hear, help us support on-air policy by sharing this podcast with friends and family. You can also make a donation to Clean Air Action Fund at cleanairactionfund.org. That's cleanairactionfund.org.